Biz Mafia, where business gets made. Join top bosses as they share their secrets on how they rose to the top, leaving their rivals sleeping with the fishes. You can only hear these unfiltered stories if you're part of the Biz Mafia family. And now, your very own Goodfellas, hosts Brian Taylor and Pat Linden. Welcome back to Biz Mafia, where business gets made. Before we delve into another exciting episode with our special guest, Christine Raffinelli, we want to remind you to connect with us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. Your feedback is invaluable as we continuously work to bring you top-notch episodes for our Biz Mafia family. Now, without further ado, let's introduce our special guest. Our guest today has quite the tapestry of experiences to share. Starting off in the bustling world of ABC News, she transitioned into communications role, spreading impactful messages for organizations like Inspirado and the Colorado Children's Campaign. Now wearing dual hats as co-founder and CEO of BiQ, she's on a mission to empower charter and private schools to make the most of their resources. BiQ, under her leadership, is helping schools achieve immediate savings and enhanced services from top national vendors. It's not just about business. It's about making tangible difference in education. Please join me in welcoming a dynamic leader, innovator, and communicator, the co-founder and CEO of BiQ, Christine Raffinelli. Welcome, Christine. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Excited to be here. Hey, Christine. Thanks for coming on. This is going to be exciting. (laughs) Normally, we get a kind of an overview, a, a brief background of our guests, and then we sort of dive into the meat of whatever it is they're currently doing or what they founded. In your particular scenario, I think we want to go a little bit deeper because you have a little bit of a non-traditional trajectory, but some traditional, and really curious to hear how all the different skill sets kind of played a role into where you are today. We know that you started your career at, uh, well, you went to Georgetown. We know that you then started your career as a broadcast journalist at ABC in New York City. We'd love to hear some about that. We know that you were the director of communications for Colorado Children's Campaign, same role for Inspirado, a high-flying private company in Denver of all things. So why don't we let you go to the beginning and uh, let's dive in and let's kind of get your take on those experiences all the way to uh, BiQ. That's right. I went to Georgetown University and was a English major there. So did not have any exposure or interest in business at that time. Georgetown has a business school. It was totally not something that I even considered for a moment. So I, I did the liberal arts approach, was an English major, government minor, and took one journalism class my senior year and really was excited by it. I think journalism had always kind of been in the back of my head and finally was able to take a journalism class towards the end of my education and came out of school super interested in that, although I didn't have much to work from. I was an athlete in college and so didn't have internships and things like that. So it was not a great start career-wise coming out of college. I felt a little bit- What was your runner? I was a swimmer. Swimmer, very good. I know you're a big runner now, but okay, so (laughs) swimming, okay. I don't know about big, but thank you. (laughs) So thankfully, Georgetown has a really excellent alumni network, and I started reaching out to alumni from Georgetown, and that's how I got my foot in the door at ABC. Got hired there as a assistant in the talent and recruitment office, which is the office that hires all the on-air talent at ABC. So you're 
on-air reporters, anchors at Good Morning America and things like that. And, you know, that was an awesome job. It was, I was especially lucky because my boss at the time was super supportive of giving me an opportunity to, you know, move on from that role. And at some point about, about nine months in, she suggested I start offering other units, my time and my off hours. And so I had offered the special events unit at ABC that I could help them with an upcoming special they were doing on the new year and started working with them. And I just had free time and turned out that that was just a couple months before 9-11. So breaking news division, the special events division is the unit that ultimately covered 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq and all of those big news stories of the time. And so I had just started volunteering with them. And so when 9-11 happened, I was kind of pulled in to help with our 9-11 coverage, which turned into, you know, many, many months of coverage. It was, we were on the air for 24 hours for the first, I think, three days with Peter Jennings, you know, doing the, the live coverage. And then subsequently that same unit covered the war in Iraq. So that was obviously a really horrible thing to be going through living in New York. I was right there kind of experiencing it from a personal level. So went on to work for eventually this, the breaking news division full-time. And that was my last role at ABC. I'd been there for about five years when I left and made the decision to move to Colorado. So yeah, then made my way to Colorado. As you said, I got a couple different jobs in communications. It was very difficult job market at that time, 17 years ago in, in Denver. There wasn't a ton for me coming from network news. I, I interviewed with a couple local news stations. At one point I interviewed to do the weather from the helicopter, weather and traffic. I mean, it was very different work environment here from a, a news perspective and really did not, I did not have the skill set for local news. It's very different. So eventually found a job at firm in Boulder that was doing executive level events and ABC News had been a client of theirs. So that's how I found my way to them. And yeah, I was there for about five years doing really interesting events in from either executive level symposiums for business clients we had or working for these international nonprofits, putting together meetings around the issues that they were covering. So I got very lucky, I think, that that was an option here. It was a really interesting job, kind of exposed me to working for a small business. That was the first small business, really, I was working for as a mother-daughter team, which was very interesting. And yeah, kind of launched my Colorado career from there. What brought you to Colorado originally? So really just a lifestyle change. I mean, living in New York, I had grown up in that area and so kind of found my way back there after college. But my husband went to school out here at CU and we'd been coming back for a little bit, you know, from vacations and really just felt like long term. New York is, I mean, I recommend everyone spend some time in New York if you can. It's awesome. It's a great opportunity for especially recent college grads, but it's the idea of like starting a family there and doing all of that seems just too challenging for us. And Colorado, you know, was, had a lot going on at that time. So, so you go from ABC news, moved to Colorado, take this opportunity in Boulder. What led to your next opportunity? So unfortunately that, that company in Boulder went through some tough times. The, you know, event, the event industry was changing and I eventually got laid off with, along with most of the company and found an opportunity with the Colorado Children's Campaign, which is a state-based advocacy organization working on behalf of kids. 
at the Van Heist Group, which is where I had been prior, I was most excited when I was getting to work with the nonprofit clients and, you know, getting involved in their mission and, and supporting the work that they were doing. So I was really interested to continue with that. And so the Colorado Children's Campaign was looking for a director of communications. I didn't really have the skill set for that, but the previous director of communications had just taken on the CEO role. So she was still there and she kind of offered to mentor me while I learned that role. And that's exactly what she did. And, you know, working at a small organization as the only director of communications, when you really don't have that skill set, I would not recommend that. But given she was still still there, she really showed me the ropes. And it was a great job too. Very, very challenging. One of the hardest jobs I've ever had working at a nonprofit doing that level of work. You know, we did a lot of work with the governor's office and state politicians to try to advance legislation on behalf of kids. And it's hard work. It's, you know, you don't, you're underfunded. Everyone's doing, I was actually the grants developer and the director of communications for the first year and a half. And it was really challenging, but very, very interesting to see how laws get made on this, on the state level. That's great. That's great. And so Ultimately, what led to BiQ? Because you know, as I listen to your story, there's a lot of transitional periods involved, right? And, and I think this last stop, it certainly opened you up to more of the nonprofit sector, to your point, the marketing side. So you're getting new exposure. So as you're taking that experience, what continues to occur and then eventually lead to BiQ? Yeah. So I actually had one stop in between the the children's campaign and BiQ, which is, I think Pat mentioned at Inspirado, which is a, at the time was an early stage startup in the luxury hospitality space. And I took on a, a communications role for them. And that was a great stop in between because that was my first exposure to, you know, a startup, a real, you know, growing company, really talented people there. And being in the communications role you know, even though it's it, it's probably not that traditional in terms of people going into entrepreneurial pursuits or eventually a CEO role, but it was great for me because I got a lot of exposure to the leadership at Inspirado and really in, in my previous job, the children's campaign too. When you're doing communications work, you're often working with the CEO or the other founders on press interviews or trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in the business so you can help tell that story. And you get a seat at the table for a lot of those decisions. So I really felt like I got to see how they were making decisions and what was leading to growth. I got exposure to kind of all units in the company because that's where some of the stories were. If it was on the product side in terms of, you know, interesting members we had using the product or traveling with us, like, trying to figure out how to tell that story or was when we were taking on new capital or growing in a a new direction of the business, you really had to kind of know and be aware of all of that. So that was a great entree into the business world. I actually got hired because they have had kind of a nonprofit arm as part of it, but eventually, you know, just turned into kind of an overall communications role for them. And so at that time, that was about now 10 years ago, 2013, my husband, Marco Raffinelli, who's my co-founder, he was working at the Colorado League of Charter Schools, which is a nonprofit here in Colorado that serves charter schools across the state. He had been hired by them several years earlier to start a business services program. So largely the Colorado League of Charter Schools is focused on advocating for schools, charter schools at the state level. So you know, making sure that charter schools are being protected by legislative changes or pushing for, you know, more funding or those types of things. But Marco was hired to start a business services 
program for them. So helping them in more of the operation side of running a charter school and including included in that was to start a group purchasing program. So charter schools, unlike traditional public schools, do not they function outside of the local school district where they operate. So they are public schools. They receive taxpayer dollars, but they aren't part of their school district. They're managed by their own independent board. And so they're making their business decisions and operations decisions on their own. So they needed support in that area. And Marco was hired to do that. He started that program at the league and then had great success. It actually kind of grew organically through his leadership into a, a national program because he he had success in Colorado with what he was doing with the group purchasing program that he started there. And other associations and other states saw that and asked to kind of piggyback off of the contracts he was creating, which in group purchasing, you know, it's all about the more buyers you have, the better pricing and power you have in the market. So grew into a national program. And we eventually had the opportunity as a couple to take over the program he had started. It had really outgrown the mission of the Colorado League of Charter Schools. And they gave Marco basically the opportunity to buy back the investment they had made and take it on as a private company. So that was really the beginning. You know, it's that's it's really Marco's story up until that yeah. point. I think there's maybe an opportunity to talk to him at another time, but it became a, a family business right away because we had yeah. just been in the process of renovating and flipping our house. And it was the one time we had a, had an opportunity to take a little money from that and use that as the seed money to, to buy the program. Pat, jump in here in a sec, but real quick. So it's interesting because you both have your professional journeys you're going on. I'm curious about as this opportunity grows and you have a chance to essentially acquire that business unit, mm-hmm. what's the conversations like at home, right? <laughs> what What's the behind the scenes? Because I'm sure it's like, well, you know, we're essentially safe and secure being W-2 employees, but this is exciting. And and there's probably, you know, opportunity you were discussing. Take us a little bit more through that closed door conversation that you're having as you guys are investigating this opportunity. I mean, definitely to, to add a, an additional wrinkle in it, we had just had our first child. So we had been three weeks holding from the hospital with our son, Leo, who's now 10 And I was on maternity leave and we were starting to take, starting to investigate whether or not this was something we could do. It was definitely a little bit more anxiety producing given that giant responsibility. We had also just taken on becoming parents. But I think this is where a husband and wife team working together has some unique, you know, benefits because I did have a job that I enjoyed and was able to use that job for our benefits as a family that gave us, you know, our consistent income. And the big thing for us too, was that the business unit that we were acquiring was already profitable, not like greatly profitable, but it didn't require us to have this, you know, year or two or three of, you know, building a company and not having any income. We knew there was already some income that could sustain us for a little while. We did take on, you know, five-year debt and that was a little nerve wracking, of course. And like I said, you know, we used the, the money from, refinancing our house to make the down payment on the program, but it felt like a smart bet. It wasn't a giant risk. We Marco had already proven that he could make something of it. And we kind of partnered on the idea that we're young now, this is the time to do it. And we're going to rely on each other and, and figure it out. If it doesn't work, then we'll try something else. And that's kind of, that was, you know, we jumped off together. So Christine, there's two two things I want to ask you about. The first is we want to do a deep dive and really kind of understand the 
business model because it's such a unique business. But you kind of segued into something that we we like to get into on this show, which is the importance of business partnerships, how challenging they can be, co-founders mm-hmm. and so on. And in your particular case, we always say it's like a marriage. And in your case, <laughs> it's a double marriage, right? So yeah. <laughs> let's get in a little more. You guys obviously work well together. You have a lot of confidence in one another. You decided to go all in. Marco had had given it some legs and opportunity, but what's that dynamic look like? And how do you manage that? Because it's such a, you know, work and family are your two most time consuming aspects of your life. Now you guys are, are intertwined in both. So let's, let's look at that. Yeah. I mean, we get asked that question so much. It's pretty fascinating how interested people are in the idea of working with their spouse. I think for us, well, first of all, when you look back in history, I mean, husband and wife teams have been part of, you know, the entrepreneurial landscape. And, and of course, like when you think about family farms and family shops and, and all of that, it's, I think it's more common than people realize, maybe just not in our more modern work culture, but people did it for generations. And I think that is because partnership is so important. I can't imagine doing this alone. And you also need someone that you can really trust. And I think that people can find a business partner outside of their spouse or direct family member, but I imagine it's hard. I mean, I I think that it almost seems harder to me than doing it the way that Marco and I have. I mean, having that base level of trust, knowing that they, you know, have your best interest at heart, you guys are we're rowing in the same direction on both the family front and the business front. For us, the biggest thing has been when, you know, before I moved over to BiQ full-time, I was doing part-time at BiQ, part-time at Inspirato. It was so difficult to navigate running our family and running our business because if I had something going on at work, he had something going on at the business, we're trying to take care of our kids or our child, one child at the time. That was way too much to manage. But once I came on board full-time at BiQ, then we could tag team. So if one of us had something really, you know, keeping us busy at work, then the other the other one of us was kind of taking the lead at home and, and vice versa. And that was hugely helpful. We really could kind of cover for each other in, in both cases. Marco is very hands-on dad and a great cook. So he was, you know, able to do the house stuff just as well as I could. And then on the work side, we had really complementary skills, which I just think is, is, you know, again, lucky. I think practically speaking, he brought the knowledge of the group purchasing industry. What I brought to the table was communications and marketing, which was kind of the second, you know, giant pillar of the company. And also we just kind of, from a personality standpoint, Marco's a bit more practical. I'm a little bit more of a dreamer, more big picture a bit, like get excited about something and and then also sometimes get to the the final, you know, get to the edge of the cliff and, and sometimes we'll freeze, whereas Marco kind of, you know, will push us off. So we just complemented each other in a lot of ways that I don't think we could have planned for, but it's been hugely important. So that's so interesting. I think complementary business partnership is huge. Mm-hmm. And so many times mm-hmm. where it doesn't work, the partners have the same professional skill set and tendencies. And you've, you've given us some examples of the differences and where those compliments happen. But really curious in terms of take us through a little bit of that, that the skill set you drew on from ABC and some of these other roles. And how did that enable you to help him get the business to the next level, if that makes sense? 
Yeah. So for the, I mean, for the first couple, I think it was about, it was at least a full year before I even joined part-time and, and Marco orig- originally kind of went down hiring someone else with a more similar background to him in the group purchasing space. And they were looking at building out the portfolio of contracts we offer to schools. And we, he did realize pretty quickly that that was not, that was not the best use of that investment, that what the company needed was someone who could market what we were offering to the schools that we were serving and also work with our vendor partners because of course what they wanted from us was access to schools, a marketing partner in the space. And so pretty quickly I started working behind the scenes to help him with that. And it just became obvious that like, okay, this is this is going to help the company the more I can give to it. I would say not only the marketing experience I had, which again, you know, I was served more communications roles, but I was always housed within marketing. So I got a lot of exposure to marketing and sales and marketing is all about, you know, reaching your audience. It's not, or sorry. And that's what, you know, communications is at the core as well, but also a lot of the work I did around events um, at the Van Heist group at the company, both, uh, at Inspirato, the Colorado Children's Campaign, all of those required a lot of event marketing too. And really the work that we do, it requires us to be part of the community. If you're not part of the community of, of schools or buyers that you serve, you really can't advocate for them. And so I had learned how to run successful events, how to reach the people we were trying to connect with. And so that also became a really important part of how we served the market and, and got to know them. So. Yeah, I don't know. Did that answer your question, Pat? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Go ahead, Ron. No, and that that brings me to the next question. You, you brought it up with the complementary skills between you and your husband, business partner. <laughs> Was there a skill set that neither one of you had that you had to hire for, whether it's you know technology, operations, and was that hire number one that you made or was it further down the line? Can you give us more insight there? We definitely you know, missed some areas too between the two of us. I would say... For me, I I did bring kind of more that soft side of marketing. I mentioned, you know, content, thankfully content was another big part of, you know, a thread within my career, starting with journalism and all the way through. And so content, events, things like that, we kind of had covered, but digital marketing at the, you know, the time we started by Q was hugely important to businesses that I had zero exposure to. So learning how to, you know, launch a website, launch an email campaign and bringing in a CRM, how to manage all of that social, social media, I'd done a little bit with, but digital marketing is really like a lot of technical skills that I just did not bring to the table. Marco, he did have an MBA. He had a lot from the operations side. So we, we he did cover us from that perspective quite a bit. He knew the the group purchasing side of the business. So I'd say that that digital marketing side was was hugely challenging for us for a while. We did hire I'm sorry, but but you you're raising something we this comes up so often because digital marketing is just such a big part of what literally every business does. Um and you I can remember 10 plus years ago, you guys were sort of on the forefront of maybe seeing the importance of it. So when you talk to digital marketing, there's email campaigns. Take us more of a deep dive. What does digital marketing look like specifically for you? Did you have to learn keyword research, et cetera? Is that part of the whole program as well? I mean, yes. And I did not learn all of it, right? I mean, we kind of focused on what we could do. Sure. So SEO never really like did that much in that area. Keyword search, not so much. We did have a lot of luck 
kind of right off the bat with organic search, I think we operated in such a niche that just having our website, doing some content, having like a blog and a resource center, having partnerships with Fortune 500 companies. So the, the vendors we work with are Fortune 500 companies. They have information about us on their websites. Those types of things helped with our organic search traffic. But you know, thank you for saying that, Pat. I don't know that we did it so great. I, we really relied on in-person conferences and phone calls with customers to to drive a lot of our, our business growth at that time. We did eventually hire a director of digital marketing. That was the same time we hired someone to help with kind of all of our business and data. That was another big challenge of ours. But I leaned on some contacts I had made at Inspirato who were very good in digital marketing, kind of picked their brains. And we made a lot of mistakes going through there, or, or at least it wasn't a straight, you know, aligned towards success. We, we hired firms, we hired contractors, hiring full-time staff, even when it was that big of important part of the company is really, really challenging as a small company, because even if that's something that's a, a, an important need at the time, you know, three months later, you're going in a different direction and you really need to be doing something else. And a digital marketing role is pretty specific. Someone in that role may not be as comfortable getting on the phone and talking to customers. So we we were challenged to hire anyone full time with a really specific skill set and digital marketing. You kind of need that, I would say, because our business was very, very fluid and we we changed direction often. So our most recent hire, thankfully, is really skilled in that area, but he's also a great salesman. He's a kind of has great leadership roles. So as a small business, I think you're always looking for people to add to the team who can really do a lot and and have a diverse background. And that's where we've made most of our investments. And were you a bootstrapped organization or did you take on outside funding initially? We were all bootstrapped. Like I said, that thankfully for us, the program already had some income coming in when we took over. But again, for a long time, I was kind of doing both jobs and we did take on that initial debt to, to buy into the program. So we, we got a little, all great stuff. The partnership idea, that was something we were going to get to. I want to take a little bit of a step back. Take us through the nuts and bolts of the business. You aggregate resources, you create purchasing power for private and charter schools Presumably, you go to the staples and so on of the world. Talk us through that. And then with a view to scale in that particular business, how are you looking to scale? So, Yeah. So, okay. So group purchasing 101, businesses of all sizes, what they buy and how much they spend on those things is hugely you know, important. The whole adage of penny saved is a penny earned. It's important that when businesses are are going out to procure the things they need, that they're getting, you know, good value for what they're buying and also that they're getting like the best that's out there. So that's obviously very, very important to schools. You think about everything that goes into a school from furniture and lighting and now technology for students. To, it's, you know, the, the tools that are inside that school are hugely important to the success of the school. So when a district school is procuring those things, they work through their district. A district has huge buying power on their own because they represent, you know, hundreds of schools in some cases in the largest districts. And so vendors are paying attention to school districts and 
They want to serve them because they're great customers. So, but charter schools, which is where we got our start, they don't work with their district. So they are a single school out there on their own trying to buy things like a Chromebook or desks for a new classroom. And they, because they're using taxpayer dollars, there are certain requirements either imposed by the state or federal government or just their own local boards that they have to go out or they should be going out to bid to get multiple responses from vendors to see you know, what the best options are for them in in that category. But as a single site charter school, what was happening at least 10 years ago is that sometimes the charter school would go out to bid on things like Chromebooks and no one would respond. (laughs) You know, vendors were like, you are a very small customer. We are, we're busy. We're going after the big districts. We don't have time or they got one vendor to respond. And suddenly that's, you know, not a great option, but they feel like, oh, we did this bid. I guess we have to go with this vendor. So, you know, the real impetus of the business was A, the charter school's you know, deserved access to great products at at good affordable prices, but also like we wanted vendors to be paying attention to these schools and they needed a partner in that space. So the idea is that we represent charter and private schools on a national level. And we can say that now because we have 4,100 schools that use the program. So we go out to bid on behalf of the schools that participated in our program and also, you know, schools that don't. So any charter and private schools eligible to use our program We go out to bid on a category such as technology and vendors respond to that RFP based on the combined purchasing power of all the schools we represent, as opposed to a single school or even a single charter management organization, which is a conglomerate of charter schools. And we negotiate on behalf of, of that number of schools using that purchasing power and also the vendors at that at that point are interested. They're like, this. okay, this is no longer a single school. This is a whole community of schools. And, and this group purchasing organization is also going to help us reach the schools that they represent. So then the vendor is motivated to respond with the best pricing that they can offer. We can further negotiate on things like extended payment terms, which are really important to schools in a lot of cases. If a school is just starting and doesn't have a credit history, for example, and we can we can just basically help advocate for schools on the market and make sure that they're getting access to the best pricing, the best products, kind of remove the friction that otherwise can be there, you know, by a single school trying to, like you said, Pat Staples is one of our, our large vendors that we work with. You know, a single charter school can sometimes have trouble just making connections with the right sales rep at a staple. So we understand the vendors we work with, we understand the the schools we represent, and we can just help that relationship be effective for everybody. So from a business standpoint, how it works, it's a free program for schools. We don't charge schools anything, but we get paid based on the total volume of purchases that flow through our contracts. So once we go out to bid, we select a winner in a category like technology, and we have a multi-year contract in place with that vendor that sets the terms, like the pricing that we've negotiated, some of those other benefits, free shipping, things like that. And we get a very small fee on the total volume that flows through that contract. So somewhere in that like one to 2% range, and we get paid by the, the vendor. It's important to note that when we go out to bid, like that fee is not negotiable. We set that ahead of time. And it's, you know, very low for our industry, given the schools that we serve. We, you know, we've made a decision from the beginning to be a low fee option in the market. And while we have that contract in place, we are a partner to that vendor. We help them reach the schools that we represent. And then we get paid by the vendor based on that total total sales flowing through the contract. What's so, so interesting about this is that you're an intermediary 
to yes. a degree, right? It's it's sort exactly. of like you're working for private and charter schools, but from a pure economic standpoint, you're kind of working for the vendor. Right. Let's talk about that. I could see that being interesting. And how do you manage that? Yeah, that's such a great question because it definitely is an issue that comes up for us regularly, right? Yeah, vendors are the ones sending us our checks, but we're really working on behalf of our schools. So even when we talk about our partners, you know, we really are talking about our schools and the relationships with our vendors are only in place as long as our contract is is in place. So I think we manage that. I haven't talked about this yet. I'm glad this question is giving me an opportunity, but we are a mission-driven organization. That has been really important to us. I think that does directly relate to my background working in nonprofits and feeling like really being focused on your end user, which in our case are the students in those schools and operating in their best interests has been, you know, a driving force in how we make business decisions. So yes, the vendors do pay us, but we are driven by what's in the best interest of the schools we serve, remembering that these are kids ultimately who are being impacted by what, you know, we offer. And that sounds you know, kind of fluffy and not that, you know, business savvy, but we have found that when we make decisions based on that, that has always helped us make the right decisions. Because sometimes when you're making tough business decisions, the, you know, the right decision isn't always clear. But when we, when we really force ourselves to to make decisions in that way, and of course we have to, you know, make money and things like that, but there's always ways to make money in business. And so we've just limited ourselves to working based on pursuing that mission. And that helps us make sure that we're not getting too in bed with any one vendor, that we're not you know, doing things to please them or that are, is directly for their benefit. It has to be in, for the benefit of the schools we serve. And I think our part, our vendor, vendors that we work with, ultimately that's in their best interest too. You know, So uh, even if they don't always see it that way off the bat, I think over time we've built up a reputation where they really see that that's where we're coming from. And so that they understand also when we make the decisions that we make. So I have a question around the technology you're utilizing, right? Because as you're growing, as you're changing, there's the introduction of technology. You want the tech stack to be updated. So it makes it easier on the operation side of the business. One thing that sticks out in my mind as I'm visualizing this is as an individual charter school, it's hard for them to have the purchase power. So what you're doing is consolidating those needs and giving them the best discount possible based on you know, a consolidated approach. At what point, because every charter school might have unique or different needs, how are you tracking, you know, if one school needs computers versus the other needs, you know, I'm making this up, right? Certain other supplies like pencils and rulers and everything else. Is there somewhere that you're consolidating the information to say, hey, now we have 10 of these schools that need laptops. Is that on an Excel sheet? Do you have technology that's consolidating that? What does that look like as you're yeah. growing this business? And taking on more clients, which eventually leads to, I mean, 4,100 schools is a lot to manage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, it is. I think I mentioned it. Data has been like a giant, giant challenge for us as a business. So we finally, I think 10 years in, have started to get our hands around it. When we get reports from the vendors, what happens is we get reports from the vendors that we work with on a quarterly basis, sometimes monthly basis, often quarterly and the reports are on the sales that have happened through our contract. So it's 
thousands and thousands of lines of data attached to individual SKUs of products attached to individual schools. And this happens across multiple, the multiple vendors we work with. And the biggest challenge has been that, you know, we're working with Fortune 500 companies. So CDW, Staples, Granger, they have a way of doing data and they are not conforming to our needs of how we would like them to do data. So it comes to us and then we have to make sense of it. But that data is the key to our business. That's how we're understanding what's happening. If it's if it's working, are we losing schools or gaining schools? What are they buying? Or you know, what are the trends that we're seeing? So we have worked very, very hard over the years to make sense of that data. A lot of it is still manual. We have to reconcile, you know, the school name with how we we talk about a school within our systems. We're using HubSpot now. It started with Salesforce to help us track all that data, but we're actually in the midst of a, of a project right now with a technology partner to help us make sense of it all. And yes, it's a big part of Marco's job. Thankfully, he's good at it and he could probably talk to you a lot more about it on a follow-up. But you know, business intelligence is, is a super important part of any business, including ours. And so, yeah, that's been a major challenge. But I think also now we, we've started to do it well, even though it's manual. So it's taking too much time, but we did finally crack the code of how to reconcile all of that information. And part of, I think, what's made us successful is figuring that out so we know what's happening and then we can really make decisions based on that data. That's great. The other thing too, around that, in terms of your scale, take us through, for you to make more money, you have to aggregate more charter and private schools, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time, as you aggregate more of them, I'm guessing you run into, because of bulk purchasing, lower fee percentages, maybe not, from suppliers. How do you sort of thread that needle in terms of BiQ's scale? So what's the key to more revenue growth and then ultimately higher profitability? Right, right. So from a group purchasing standpoint, you can either go after more customers or you can go after more vendors, right? And more more products out there to offer to your existing customer base. We traditionally, I'd say over the last 10 years, we were pretty focused on going after more schools. There was still a lot of opportunity for us within charter schools, in within the charter school market. And even though we only had, compared to other group purchasing organizations out there, we have a very, very small portfolio. We have under 10 vendors. Most group purchasing organizations have hundreds. But we consider ourselves a, a niche boutique purchasing organization. And we really pride ourselves on serving also the vendors that we work with when we have contracts in place. And when you get into the hundreds of contracts and you've got multiple vendors in a single category, you're kind of A, not really picking a winner for the school. So are you really helping them that much? You know, if you're kind of, you have a contract in place with almost every office supply vendor or every technology vendor, that's a bit confusing. And also, how can you really serve that vendor when you're talking to schools? If you're you know, you've, you've got a whole menu of options. So we made a decision to keep our vendor portfolio pretty small. And when it comes to schools and what they buy, we actually were covering, you know, 80% of what they were buying, even with our very small portfolio. So for a long time, we really focused on going after schools from a mission standpoint. We felt that was pretty in keeping with our mission. We wanted to make sure schools knew that this option existed for them. We did a lot of education around what purchasing is and 
how it can work and clearing up mis- misinformation within the charter school community around, you know, that they have to go out to bid on their own and those sorts of things. So we were really out there just being a member of the community, educating schools and, you know, slowly bringing schools on board. I would say that more recently, we have started to look at expanding our portfolio just a bit. We we felt like we were, when we were really looking at the portfolio, we felt a little weak in some areas. So we have recently brought on two new furniture vendors, for example. We're looking at a couple other categories, but we, we've done that pretty slowly because when we bring on vendors, we want to make sure we've got the resources to support them and support that contract to make sure they're, they're, they're getting the value from the relationship as well. Doesn't that make it less transactional and more of a tr- true partnership when you when you only have 10 vendors as opposed to 100 and therefore right. you know you in the spirit of partnership you can figure out what works for them and for you in, in in these charter schools absolutely and especially being a small group purchasing organization i mean this is a multi-billion dollar business it's it's a business that most people you know haven't heard of but if you're aware of the industry you know that there's giant group purchasing organizations out there with billions of dollars flowing through their contracts and they do have you know hundreds of of, of vendors if not thousands and we're competing with them i mean they a lot of some some of them serve charter schools and private schools and so we have to differentiate ourselves and the way that we've done that is to say okay we're going to we're not going to try to get every customer out there because some gpos also you know, are happy to take on, you know, everyone from a small business to a a municipality, to a hospital, to a school. But are you really serving, you know, that customer when you're serving that wide of a group of customers? You know, our contracts are negotiated specifically on the needs of the schools that we serve. And then for the vendors, they're willing to give us that pricing that our schools need just for us to stay competitive with those large GPOs because we help them so much within this particular niche. So yes, it's, it's really important that, you know, as we, we've had to think about that a lot as we've grown. I was going to ask, so it's interesting too, because presumably to a degree, the districts, public school districts are a competitor of yours, right? or not. And then before you answer that, because you answered it a little bit, you said there are other, there's billions of dollars of purchasing power that do this, but is there a direct competitor or more that does only what you're doing on behalf of charter and private schools? Not a direct competitor in our space. So there's no other GPOs that only serve private and charter schools, but there's a lot of GPOs like I mentioned, that are happy to serve them. So that's a challenge for us in some cases. And, you know, certain regions maybe have a state contract that charter schools. So a a state contract, meaning like this, you know, a state of Texas or a state of California, sometimes they have their own contracts and charter schools are able to use those. Or there's another group purchasing organization nationally. You know, there's several that are open to serving charter schools. And sometimes the, the salespeople within the vendors we work with are just more aware of those larger group purchasing organizations. They're maybe more familiar with them. And so part of our work is to make sure even the sales reps at the the vendors we work with know about us and know how our contract is different and the unique benefits that it offers schools. So no direct competitors, but certainly it's a competitive landscape. You know, I was going to ask about um, when you're scaling the business, right? Aside from the data management for present day, what else are you looking at to say, we have to master X, Y, or Z in order to really take this thing to you know, the next level? Yeah. 
for us, it's relationships. And again, I know that that's probably not something that is typical for every business because it's not, what's interesting about our business is we don't actually sell anything, you know? So even like a typical sales organization just wouldn't make sense for us. We're not selling anything directly to the schools because they're not paying to use our program. And we're not selling anything to vendors. We're impartial to vendors until we have this contract in place. And like I said, the fees we charge, all of that is, is set ahead of time. So we are that third leg of the stool. We're part of the relationship between vendors and the customers. And so it's a constant maintenance of those relationships because people at schools move in and out of positions as the COO or the CFO or procurement director. Those are the folks that we interact with. And it's our job to know them, understand what their needs are. You know, during COVID was a super interesting time to be serving schools, of course, um, with all the needs they had around masks and sanitary products and that sort of thing. So we have to know what's going on at the school level in order to make sure that we're creating contracts that serve them. And then our vendors, of course, are looking for those introductions. So that's a harder job than you know it sounds. It's, it's getting out on the road. It's, it's figuring out how to manage those relationships. And then I think the other thing is, and so we're always looking at like unique ways to do that because they might, you know, school leaders, they are so busy. They wear so many hats, especially at the charter school and private school level there. That's kind of what they're known for. You know, that operations director or COO at a charter school, they are like helping unclog a toilet one minute and they are like figuring out, you know, teacher recruitment strategies the next minute. I mean, it's a big, big job. And so that we're often just one small part of it, but we really try to be service to them in areas that way outside of procurement. You know, we, we try to, one of the interesting things that we found is that we sometimes know more, I think we know more charter school leaders maybe than anyone because it's our job to, to know them all. And we can often help introduce charter school leaders and private school leaders to each other when they're facing a business challenge that is new to them, but we know another school dealt with that, you know, last year or the year before. So we're constantly trying to figure out ways to be a, a beneficial part of the community. And if we can do that, then our the rest of our job is easy. And that ties right into the relationships you just mentioned. I mean, that's how you're building relationships and being a value outside of you know, the service that you're providing, which is really important. Definitely. Let's talk a little bit about scale, kind of level two scale, right? I know you've looked at a lot of different business options because we've talked about them. What you did, which I find really interesting fairly recently and kind of trying to get to the next level, you said before, which I completely agree, finding a business partner to help you scale. I mean, Outside of the personal relationship aspects, I actually think a lot of times the husband-wife thing can work even better because you have the trust and so on. But finding sort of somebody random and making it work between economics and all the other things, you went and found somebody in your industry, you forged a connection, you put together sort of a third partner equity deal that had some requirements and so on, seems to be going well. Take us through that. How has that added to the business and where do you see that going? And what would your advice be to other kind of small businesses? Because you have to do everything. So being able to find that exec level owner mentality is huge. Absolutely. Yeah. So Marco and I had talked, you know, we're 10 years in now. We've got two kids. We're we're trying to kind of enjoy the life 
we have now are realizing we're kind of in this sweet spot of our kids are still, you know, enjoying hanging out with us. And we, you know, have grown this business. We're not in total panic mode. You know, it's, it's you know, it was stressful first few years. We kind of are kind of settled into things and we, you know, started having conversations around like, we, we want to be able to enjoy this stage of life. And it's hard to run a business and raise a family. And, but we said to ourselves, we just kept saying, but like, there's real opportunity here for the, for the right person. If we could find someone to help us who is hungry, like we are, we have a great platform for that. And like, we see some opportunities for growth, but we just don't know, you know, if we're the right people to do that, or, you know, certainly by ourselves. I left this out. I think Brian, you asked me earlier in the conversation, what other maybe area you know, that of the business that Marco and I didn't really cover with our skill sets. Neither of us were great managers. We learned, we did hire a couple of people early on and we struggled with that. And not, neither of us really had a ton of experience managing people. So that was one area that we, as we were looking to grow, we didn't feel super confident that we would be the ones to, to manage that team. And then also it felt like that would be just hard for us given our other, you know, the areas in our life that we're trying to focus on with our family and whatnot. You know, when you've got a team that you're managing, you need to be available to them and leading by example and all of those things. And if we're, you know, trying to also spend a little bit more time with family at this stage in our life, that also seemed like a challenge. So we knew that there was a great opportunity here for the right person, but finding that person did seem very, very difficult. So really what happened was, again, little, a little luck, I don't know, being the right place, right time. We were at a conference for charter schools, which we are often at. And I happened to strike up a, a conversation with Daniel Caselli, who's now the, the partner we've brought on board. He was working for an ed tech company in the space. He was working at his booth at this conference. And we just had an immediate, I would say, rapport. He seemed like a really smart guy. We just kind of started talking about business challenges. Marco and I were were kind of actively looking at like what we should be doing at this stage in our company's growth. And he just had some natural curiosity about that. I, I forget how we got to that. But I think that it's important to be vulnerable with people and share with people what what's going on, because that leads to actual real conversations. And so, you know, we were having a real conversation and he expressed interest in the, in the company. And then he didn't share with us exactly at that time, but he ended up following up with me and sharing that, you know, he was looking for an entrepreneurial opportunity. He, He knew this space. He, he knew a little bit about what we did and things went from there. And I think that it was a long seventh month conversation, Pat, you were involved in a lot of that. So thank you so much. You were a great partner to us for sure. As we went through those conversations, I think especially what I appreciated about you is that you understood the legal side, but you also really understood the, you know, the business owner side and the emotional side of like what we were trying to do. And it is scary to bring someone on, on that level, but we just, constantly just tried to be open with him about really what we needed and what we were scared of. And I think sharing that, you know, those fears is so important. And to Daniel's credit, he did it too. And there were some, you know, major changes of direction during that time. And Daniel really rode those out very, very well. And by the end of that seven month negotiation, we were pretty confident that if we could get through this, that we could work together and we're seven months in now. And so far it's going really well. He brings a lot of skills to the table that we don't have. He's bringing kind of a renewed energy. And so far we're very optimistic. That's great. And that is a fantastic 
fantastic comment about being vulnerable. I think one of the things Pat and I have talked about, and one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast was some stories you just hear the rainbows, right? And sunshine, that's all it is. And, and no one's ever vulnerable or people tend to ignore the truth or not share the truth about, you know, how stressful it can be scaling and growing a business. And so, you know, hearing that that's the best way to make progress and, you know, achieve results just by being vulnerable. Those are just great comments. One thing I'm curious about is I'm big on strategic planning, right? And I, and I'm just visualizing the start where you and your husband, probably around the kitchen table, kind of mapping these things out all the way through present day. How has your strategic planning changed? Did you have a traditional cadence where, you know, at first, and because you're putting duct tape on the wings as you're flying the plane, you're probably meeting, you know, weekly, talking about strategy. Did it eventually evolve into this normal cadence of, hey, at the end of each year, October, November, whatever it is, let's start putting and mapping out next year's strategy. Did you start to do that? Are you starting to do that now? What does that process look like? Yeah. So believe it or not, we actually just did a strategic planning session, the three of us, four weeks ago. So it's certainly something that we do. I would not say that we had a super strict schedule around it, but we did try to do it fairly regularly. And also to to Marco's credit, he had some experience himself doing some consulting with around strategic planning. So when he was prior to BiQ, he had, had done that for a couple charter schools actually, and, and had some experience doing that. So we use the SWOT method, you know, your strengths and weaknesses and threats and opportunities. And that, you know, even as a small business, it is important to step back and think big picture. And believe it or not, we also started to do it as a family too. We had the Raffinelli strategic plan and what our goals were as a family and use that kind of business approach because they were so uniquely you know, intertwined, but strategic planning helped a lot. And it is wild to look back at your, our strategic plans from like five years ago or eight years ago and and see the things that we were nervous about or challenged by and actually see, you know, the growth that we've had and that we have accomplished things. I think it is really important. And it's, I read something recently that, you know, even if you do do that strategic plan, you spend a lot of time, you get it all on paper, you know, you shouldn't also beat yourself up if you don't follow it exactly to a T. But the important part is like really going through it and allowing yourself to think on that level because it, it does bring out new ideas. Or, you know, if you've got these things in the back of your head that you're worried about, competitors, things like that, sometimes putting it on paper and really just talking through helps you realize like, okay, yes, you know, these are some threats, but would we be able to navigate through them? And why could we do that and, and help you decide, you know, where to invest resources to help you feel better about some of those, you know, concerns? I definitely recommend it. And for us, it's like I said, Marco brought a lot of skills to the table and really led us through that himself, which was awesome. And it really helps you, you know, work on the business rather than being stuck in the business, right? It, it forces you to be pulled away from the day-to-day operations. So very insightful. Thanks for Thanks for sharing that. So Christine, as we kind of conclude this, and there's so many different directions we yeah. could take this and, and uh, which is the uh, love to be able to get into so many, but one thing I'd like to, I think we'd like to get your perspective for our guests who are for the most part entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs and executives, given where you came from, you know, 9-11 out of Georgetown, ABC, and broadcast journalism, and now here you are running what's not a startup, and you're scaling, and you're do- you've learned and done so many amazing things. 
for other people that may want to get into business, they may want to run a company that that maybe come from a non-traditional background, you know, what would be your advice to them? So I have a couple of pieces. I mean, number one, I think reaching out to people you know, right? So for me, it was folks from Inspirato. I, the co-founder of Inspirato ended up being one of our best mentors. And you have to have at least the courage to reach out to folks like that and ask for help. I was always so pleasantly surprised by how willing people were to take the call and make recommendations, you know, introductions to their attorneys or their, you know, marketing firms or or just quick pieces of advice. So I'd say that look really at your Rolodex of people, whoever it is, and, you know, maybe go a little farther than you you think in terms of who, you know, you reach out to. I think people are more willing and excited to help young people starting a business than folks may realize. So that would be one. I think two is read a lot. You know, not coming from a business background, when we were looking at growth opportunities or or doing, you know, negotiations with vendors that early on felt overwhelming to us was certainly outside of my wheelhouse. There's a lot of great books on negotiation or on how to grow a business or how does private equity work, which I knew nothing about. And, you know, we had started kind of looking at things like that. And but books are awesome and you can basically get an MBA, you know, education if you read enough. So I think, you know, looking for those resources and then beyond that, celebrate your wins because there's a lot of scary <laughs> times where you're, you know, afraid the wheels are going to come off. But there's also a lot of wins if you make sure that you're looking for them. I think that small businesses and entrepreneurial businesses, they move very fast and it's easy to get through one thing and be off to the next thing. But if you take a moment to just look behind and make, you know, pat yourself on the back, realize that you've accomplished something and that that can give you the confidence as you move forward. So those, those would be my top three things, I think. Quickly, any, any books that come to mind that off the top of your head that you can endorse? Yes. My favorite book, which is not really a business book, and I don't know the author name, but is Nonviolent Communication. If you've not read that book, it's a great book just about how to communicate with people. And that's a giant part of business. So I think that's an amazing book for anyone in any sort of relationships, but certainly from the business standpoint, you know, you're in relationships a lot or navigating relationships. I also like Getting to Yes. That's a great negotiation book um, that's come in handy for us a couple times. Those would probably be my top two. Awesome. Well, listen, this has been amazing. So grateful that you were willing to come on and kind of uh, share your story. As you know, the theme of the show is uh, is Biz Mafia. We like to always have a little bit of anecdotes. Um, I came up with something for you, Christine. I hope you like it. You are being inducted as the godmother of group purchasing for private and charter schools. You're the consigliere that ensures that these schools get an offer that they can't refuse. Wow. All right. Thank you, Pat. Well done, Pat. If you say so. (laughs) Got it. And remember, Biz Mafia is what? Where business gets made. Excellent. There we go. Thank you so much. Christine, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. And Pat, you've been a great partner to us over the years. So thank you so much for that. And I, I wish you guys all the best on this podcast. Thank you. Appreciate that. You've successfully whacked another episode of the Biz Mafia podcast. Familia, remember, loyalty is everything. 
Join us next round as we continue our journey through the syndicate of success. Leave us your comments and be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple, or other podcast outlets. Stay sharp and always keep it in the family. And remember, Biz Mafia is where business gets made.